For our scripture reading congregation, we turn first to the book of Deuteronomy, to God's revelation of his holy law, familiar words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we read the first six verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. God's holy word to our hearts. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over <clears throat> to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you that you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that, you may, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. We'll stop there and then we turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Paul's letter to the Roman church, chapter 3, verse 9 to 20. Here the justice and righteousness of God is revealed to his people and demonstrating that all need his grace, all are under sin, Jews and Gentiles alike. We read in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who were under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the, of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then just a few words from chapter 13 of Romans. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10 echoing very clearly what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. 
so far from reading of Holy Scripture. And then let us go to Lord's Day 2 as our text for the afternoon sermon. Lord's Day 2, introducing us to our sin and our misery, the knowledge of that. Having heard last week concerning Lord's Day 1, our only comfort in life and in death. The Catechism now brings us to that point of the knowledge of our sin. Lord's Day 2, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in, in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And thus we confess as well as Reformed believers. <clears throat> Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I guess it goes without saying considering the times we are living in today, that everyone would love to be healthy and well and have no need for any vaccine of any sort, but would long to simply be healthy and well in body and in soul. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be healthy, to be strong, to be physically fit, to be spiritually alive and well. There continues to be so much emphasis upon that. You can go to all kinds of physical fitness centers or wellness centers, to get training, to get therapy. You can go to a local bookstore and get all kinds of self-helps and how to make yourself a better person, how to, how to be spiritually well, how to experience wholeness. You can go to this psychologist or that one. You can get all you want, all you need, so to speak, in order to try to achieve a sense of wellness or healthiness, whether mind, body, or spirit, you name it. <clears throat> But congregation, the mind, the the spiritual health and strength of one's body and mind and spirit is ultimately not achieved at all by human means, not by something within us, but by something that comes from the outside, of course. That which only can come from the Lord God who made heaven and earth and who also then revealed himself to us in his holy word. He tells us what's good, what's healthy, what's well, and how that is to be attained and and preserved. You heard last time about um, your only comfort in life and in death, that you belong to your only Savior, Jesus Christ, in body and soul you belong to Him. He's fully paid for all your sins. He set you free from the tyranny of the devil. He promises to you eternal life and that not a hair can fall from your head without your Father's will. And He even makes you wholeheartedly willing to live for Him. Well, how does that sound? Well, that that speaks of wellness, doesn't it? Talk about wellness, it is well with my soul when you can make such a confession as Lord's Day 1. Then it is well with you. Now God makes this reality also available to us by revealing to us, of course, this knowledge of himself and of Christ and also the knowledge of our own selves 
all from his holy word. And in his holy word, he does not tell us that it is well with us. No, he tells us the opposite, that it is not well with us at all. As a matter of fact, our spiritual health could not be worse. Paul, writing to the Romans, speaks, of us, speaks about us all being under the law and all of us being under sin. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, we learn that we are all dead in sin. Our sin and misery, indeed, it is very great. Now we would ask, why does God want to tell us all about this? Well, it is because He is a gracious God. And by means of His sovereign grace, He has come to do something about this unhealthiness, this sickness of our souls. And that brings us to our theme, congregation, because God is gracious. Because He is gracious, He makes known to us our sin and our misery. Quite frankly, God seeks to make us whole. He desires to save sinners from their sins. For that purpose, He sent His only begotten Son to be sure they are His holy elect whom He has known before the foundation of the world. And yet to each of us goes the well-meant offer of the gospel that we should be saved from our sins, that we should be taken out of our misery. This is all part and parcel of God's very nature. He's a gracious God. And He begins to work this grace in us by means, first off, by means of His holy law. And as we read his holy law and come to know it, we realize immediately there's no wellness in us at all. But we are full of sin and misery. We cannot help but recognize that fact when we seriously listen to God's holy word and see how it impinges upon us, how it convicts us of what's wrong with us. And the purpose, of course, is that we would realize our desperate need for a spiritual cure, for a great physician who only God can provide for us, lest we perish in our sin unforgiven. And this is the purpose of Lord's Day 2 and of question 3, when it asks the question, from where do you know your sins and misery? And it's simply the short answer, from the law of God. We might wonder why in the world does God even want to bother with us? Well, He's a gracious God. He does not want us to simply stay where we are, mired in our sin, condemned to everlasting hell. He's full of grace. And He's determined to save broken, sinful creatures like me, like you, and to take us out of this misery. The question is a simple one. From where do you know you're your sin and misery? And the answer is equally short, from the law of God. Brothers and sisters, sin is the greatest misery that we could possibly have. Sin is the greatest misery. Sin is misery itself. It is miserable. It is misery. Sin is a total lack of wellness within our whole being. But it's more than that, of course. It's a moral corruption of our, of our human nature that we receive from Adam. Sin is an offense to God. Sin is a violation of His holy will. Sin is disobedience. And we can go on and on and on and talk about what sin all amounts to. But in a nutshell, this is what it is. It, it is it's a, it's a, the breaking of God's will. It is, a, it is the becoming full of misery. How do we know this? 
How can we be sure of this? Does, does your conscience simply tell you all of this? Well, I would say hardly so because your conscience can put a pretty good spin on, on our evil thoughts and our evil actions and judge us to be pretty good people. Our conscience can do that. And so we need something far more than our conscience to tell us what's wrong with us. We need something, some standard of moral excellence that is altogether beyond us and above us. Something under which we must be in order to learn from it. And that, of course, is the law of the Lord. The law of God is our teacher concerning our sin. By it we come to know it. And of course, we hear about God's law just about everywhere in the Holy Scriptures. I've chosen a familiar passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you listen to this, the word law, law, law basically comes through every verse that I read. Moses writes, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. It's law, 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 all the way through, right? That you may observe them, that's keeping law, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, that you may keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. There already is a high point there, isn't it, after all this hearing about the law. The fact that Israel's days would already be prolonged in the land that they were going if they kept God's commandments shows how good that law really was. It was to enable them to have their days be, be prolonged and, and their numbers being multiplied. And so we see the goodness of God's commands. They teach us what is morally right and good and true. And if we keep those laws, we will suffer far less misery than if we don't keep those laws. Then it will not be well with us. And so the law of the Lord is good congregation. Look what it goes on to say about itself in verse 3. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, eh, the law, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Here God speaks of personal wellness, wellness of our, of our souls. It was well with Israel when they kept the laws of the Lord and when they believed his promises and when they obeyed his precepts. At the same time, the law of God would say, on the other hand, however, if you don't keep my commandments, if you don't practice my precepts, well, guess what? It's not going to be well with you. You will indeed become very miserable. And so this tells us one thing, congregation, that the law of the Lord is very, very good. It could not be improved upon by anybody or by any other teaching. It is good. It reveals 
the perfect moral order for the human race, for the, for the law specifically tells us it will be well with us if we observe those commandments and if we keep those precepts and if we listen to those statutes, it will be well with us. And so the flip side has got to be true as well, that it will not be well with us. And what then would be the upshot? Well, it would show the opposite of that wellness. It would show our sinfulness, wouldn't it? It would show our miserableness. It would all be exposed and stated to be what it is, sin, disobedience, and so forth. And what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see so clearly echoed by the Apostle Paul, we see that the true Christian religion doesn't change one iota as we go from, from uh, Old Testament to New. Paul says in verse 19 of Romans 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Paul tells us we're all under the law. Isn't that how God spoke to the Israelites of old? They were to keep his commandments and observe his precepts. They were under that obligation, weren't they? Paul says here we are under the law. And what it says, it says to those who are under it, that every mouth might be stopped and all the world might be guilty before God. We, we can't argue with this, can we? Paul says, let every mouth be stopped. Literally, it means let every mouth be shut up. The law tells us that when we break it, we become guilty before God. We can't change that assessment. It stands true forever because it's God's righteous judgment. We become guilty when we do not keep that law. And congregation that particular personal guilt of all of us is part and parcel of the greatness of our misery. Feeling guilty is always a miserable thing to deal with, isn't it? You can't just shake it loose and pretend that guilt is not there. God says you're guilty being under the law, having not kept it. You can't get out from under that. It's, it's demonstrative of our misery. And then he, Paul goes on to say in the next verse, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And there you have it. That's exactly what question 3 is saying. Where do we know our sin from in misery? From the law of God. Paul says the knowledge of our sin comes from the law of God. Now again, why does God go through the trouble to explain these things to us, to make us know our sin and guilt? You know, people today don't like to talk about sin and guilt because then they think they'll be better off, they'll have a happier day. If they can avoid sin altogether and pretend misery's all gone, well, then they'll be happy, right? No, they'll be worse off than they ever were before. We've got to know about our sin and guilt and ever to be able to ever to get out from under it, to be saved from it. And so we see that God is a gracious God. 
when the law impacts us under God's goodness, that already is a mercy toward us. It's a very good thing that the law presses in upon us, makes us see our sin and our misery. And so don't ever think you can ignore the law of God or play loose with it and think we can kind of do without it and still kind of skate through life nice and easy and all will be well with me. No, nothing could be further from the truth. The law of the Lord is God's gracious instrument to uncover your sin in order to affect your salvation. Just like a doctor needs a diagnostic tool to determine what your condition is, what type of disease you might have, so the Lord's diagnostic tool is none other than His holy law to diagnose our condition and to make us ready for the, the cure, the remedy, the salvation that we so desperately need. And so, congregation, I pray that you love the Lord because of His holy law that He's given to you. Yes, we love the Lord because of Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Amen. We love the Lord because of the Holy Spirit whom He has sent into our lives. Amen to that too. Love the Lord because of His beautiful, holy, wonderful law that He also sends into our hearts as we hear it from His holy word, as you hear it from the mouth of the preacher. But now secondly, what exactly does it mean that God gives us his holy law? What does he in essence now require of us? What are we supposed to do with this law? How does it operate? How does it help us? Well, that's question four and the answer, what does God's law require of us? Uh, Christ teaches us in his summary in Matthew 22, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Is this not congregation a most wonderful, pure and perfect moral order? Would Jesus summarize in Matthew 22 the echo of Deuteronomy 6? Is this something that could have been invented by men? These precious laws of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and neighbor as yourself? Do we read of that in the Koran, for example? Would you find anything remotely like this in the, in the sacred writing, writings of the old Buddhist monks that go back hundreds and hundreds of years? You don't hear anything like this in any other sacred book but the Holy Scriptures. This loving the Lord your God with all your heart. And so as we hear the law of God, congregation, as we learn His judgments, His commandments, His precepts, and what we are to do with them, God is teaching us one thing, how we're supposed to love Him period. And then secondly, how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's, of course, the conclusion Moses comes to in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
after in the first three verses setting forth the, the, the presence of the law in the life of Israel. Then he goes in verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now here's the, here's the upshot, here's the thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That's what God wants from us, our hearts. That's where all law-keeping begins in our hearts. If it doesn't start there, it's nothing but hypocrisy. It must begin in the heart. God made man for this vital purpose that we would love our Creator. Of course that we would know Him, of course that we would obey Him, but foremost that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And if that is the case for God, is it not exactly the same for our fellow man? If we are to love our Creator, ought we not to love everything our Creator has made, in particular our fellow man? If we love our Creator, ought we not to love everything that He has done, everything that He is doing, everything that He promises to us in His Word, everything that He has accomplished? Ought we not to love all of that too? Of course, of course. These things all just logically fit together. And so we see that the whole moral order for the universe can be summed up in one word, the word love. That's how we have God defined in 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. And so congregation, love the creature, love everything that he has made. Love him simply for who he is. Even before we think about what he has done, Love him because he is the God of heaven and earth. And that, of course, is what Jesus is getting at when he summarizes the law of the Lord for us. And it's quoted here in verse, and in question four, Christ teaches us this in a summary when we're talking about what does his law require? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great commandment. And there's a second like it. It's, attach, it's, like, it's like attachment number one to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And Jesus, of course, did not simply pull this out of thin air. He's quoting what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And throughout those Old Testament scriptures, there's always the command that stands right beside it, that Israel was always to love their neighbor as themselves. We'll read of that, for example, in, Luke, or sorry, in Leviticus 19, verse 8. And guess what? Paul reinforces the very same thing in... Um, Romans chapter uh, 13, verse 8. He says, Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he lists some of those laws, second table of the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Could any of us argue with that moral high moral noble standard that God has given to the human race to love every man, woman, and child, to love your neighbor as yourself? Can't we recognize the purity, the goodness, the wisdom, the wholeness of these beautiful commandments to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love one another? And see how this love comes to expression in all sorts of ways and in all human relationships when Paul reiterates, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other law, it's in the same category, isn't it? Can you imagine how beautiful life would be Can you imagine how much in harmony with one another mankind would be? How much peace, how much lack of misery there would be in the human race if if nobody committed adultery, if nobody wanted to murder anybody in his heart even? Can you imagine if nobody ever stole a thing? You wouldn't need locks on anything. You wouldn't need a security code for anything. Can you imagine if nobody bore false witness in this day and age when we are, we are inundated with lies and half-truths and misinformation from the people we ought to be able to trust so completely? And how do we know who's speaking the truth? Can you imagine if nobody would bear false witness and if nobody would covet what does not belong to him? Talk about a moral purity. That sounds like heaven to me almost. See the goodness of God's holy law here brought to our hearts congregation when we really stop to think about the sum and the substance of that law and, and, and what it amounts to and that this is all has been designed by God for the good of humanity. And so when we don't love God with all our hearts, And if we don't care to love our neighbor according to these precepts, what do we see? Then we see what's wrong with us, right? Then we see why there is so much misery in the world. Because we haven't kept the law. We haven't loved God. There's been a gross absence of love And if love is absent, what's there instead? Hatred. Hatred. The absence of love means the presence of hatred. So what is wrong with us? We do not love God as we ought. We don't love our parents as we should. We don't love our brothers and sisters as we expect them to love us. We don't love the elders of the church like we ought to. 
Ministers don't love their congregations as they should. We don't love our neighbor with all our soul and heart and strength. We just don't, and we just can't. And yet that's no excuse whatsoever. This does not get us off the hook at all because we can't. Remember what Paul said, let every mouth be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. That's where we are under the law. There's no way out, is there? There's no escape route that we could fix for ourselves. And that's what, of course, brings us to question five. Can you keep all of this perfectly? Short answer, no. No. I am inclined by nature. That means I am naturally disposed to hate God and my neighbor. I'm glad the Bible says this. If this would only come from me, you probably wouldn't believe me. But this is what God teaches us in his holy word. Can we love God perfectly? No, we can't. Why? Because we're simply inclined by nature. That's our bent, that's our twist, our disposition, fallen in Adam, to hate God and my neighbor. Love, on the one hand, is moral perfection, and I don't have it. Hating is falling short of that moral perfection, and that I have, that I have, that I know, if we are honest with ourselves. And yet, having said that, even when we come to this kind of bottom line kind of conclusion about our humanity and what we cannot do, keep God's law, even then God is gracious to us. Even then God doesn't let us go and say, you're out of here. No, even then he teaches us our inability to keep his law. I think, now why? That's bad news. Why this? As the Catechism says, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I just can't love God perfectly. As an unbeliever, I wouldn't love him at all. It's like a patient, can he, who's full of cancer, can he try to heal himself of his cancer? No. So also a man who is full of hatred to God of himself, he cannot cure himself of that hatred. A leopard can't change his spots. A blind man can't give himself a sight. We who are dead in sin cannot make ourselves into God-loving people. Congregation, when we've come to this conclusion, when we've come this far in the, in the course, so to speak, then we already are beginning to experience something of God's grace where he wants us to be, to come to this point, to come to this conclusion. Then we begin to taste something of God's grace because he then has set the stage for us, spiritually speaking, to see our desperate need, a desperately needed Savior, one who is the embodiment of love and the perfection of all of God's laws. 
and not only one who is the perfection of, 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 uh, of the law of love, but one who is able to fulfill it for us too. Can you imagine that? And then give to us all the blessings of his fulfillment of, his, of God's holy law and to save us from its condemnation and then on top of that to make us to be reborn after his image so that we can begin to keep not only some but all of God's holy laws by his grace. Not perfectly, but indeed on that road of sanctification. And in the process, begin the removal of the wrongness that is within us. This hating of God and my neighbor. But before that great salvation comes to full impact in our life, we first have to agree with this. This fifth question. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And we've got to agree with that question and that answer because that's exactly what the Holy Scriptures teach us in Romans chapter 3 at verse um, 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul speaks. He says... And this is kind of hard stuff to stomach as well if we would come skeptically to the scriptures. He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Why? Why won't people understand? And why will they not seek Him? They don't love Him one little bit, period. They do not love him. They don't want him. Paul goes on to write, now with regard to human relationships, verse 12, they've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. In other words, they kind of, they spit out death, you might say, by their words. Their tongues, they have practiced, they practice deceit with that. They're liars. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I'll stop there. That describes human relationships. Why are these human relationships the way they are? Because man does not love his neighbor either. Plain and simple. He don't love God. He don't love the neighbor. Here's the consequences. And what are those consequences? Look at verse 16. He says, destruction and misery are in their ways. Misery. It's in their way. It's what they cultivate. It's the, it's the track record that goes behind them. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, there you have it. There's no fear of God. They couldn't care less about who God is, what God said, what God commands. No fear of God because, of course, they don't love God one iota. And so they couldn't care less about their neighbor, what they do to him, how much they might hurt him, how much they might harm him, how much they might abuse him, deceive him. 
do what they want to him. That shows the catechism is right, right? I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The Bible here shows the, the consequences, the reality of that question and answer. And so, congregation, we, we see where God is getting at, right? With his holy law. And we see what the catechism writers are now getting at when they bring us this far. And this is part and parcel of the Lord bringing before you the spiritual diagnosis of yourself, your spiritual condition. And he's going through all this work and effort and trouble because he's a gracious God. He does not want to leave you where you are, stuck and condemned and filthy in your sin. But he's come here to show you the way out of the greatness of your sin, the greatness of our misery, because he alone can alleviate it. He's the one who could make you whole. He is the one who enables us to be reborn of the Spirit of God to begin to look like, guess who? Jesus Christ himself. For that purpose, he died. And so by means of his holy law, he is preparing you for the fullness of his grace manifested in Jesus of Nazareth, that only Savior from heaven, given among men, by whom we must be saved. Acts 4, 12 tells us. This morning I spoke about the angel saying to the women that they, they must believe. Well, this is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. He comes at God's command to save sinners from their sins. Oh, how much you need the Lord Jesus Christ. How much I need the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we all perish unforgiven in our sins. Amen.